0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. We are here in this last few weeks before we go to our summer schedule, uh, wrapping up our time uh, for this year in the book of Mark with the longest chunk of teaching that Jesus gives in that gospel. Uh, On John's gospel, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, we have this intimate picture of Jesus with his disciples washing their feet, talking about how the promise of the Holy Spirit will be with them, um, engaging them and preparing them for the future in that way. But by contrast, Mark's way of Jesus preparing his disciples is by portraying future events, the destruction of the temple, the fall of Jerusalem. It is notoriously one of the most studied, most baffling, most confusing parts of Mark's gospel. So if you're here for the first time, welcome. Uh, It's going to be very strange. It's one of the most cryptic parts of the story. Uh, this section belongs within a genre called apocalyptic, which is full of uh, symbolism, imagery, metaphor. It's a picture of the future that reads less like a blueprint and more like an abstract painting. And in the popular imagination, apocalyptic is, uh, you know, it's about the end of the world, Right. Uh, we have this whole cottage industry of books and movies and TV shows about a dystopian future where the clock is running down on humanity, usually because of something that humanity has done, be that uh, through a, you know an infectious disease that leads to zombies or uh, AI taking over the world, which every year seems like, oh, yeah, okay, maybe. <laughs> Um, or because of some thermonuclear disaster, or because of environmental catastrophe, or something like that. But the word apocalyptic simply means to reveal. Uh, Apocalyptic is about pulling away the veil, removing the illusions, showing reality for what it really is. And yes, it's not always pretty. In a sense, you could say that the year... 2020 was apocalyptic, not because the world ended, but because it revealed something. Between COVID and the murder of George Floyd, that uh, was three years ago this past week. The, all of the underlying political and mental health crises that all of this exacerbated. We all came to a standstill where we all were kind of looking at the same Thing. We all experience the kind of disconnect between the path that we thought we were on, the script that we thought our life was going to play out, our expectations of the future, and the present with all of its fragility that we were living under. And so the function of the Olympic is about the library of scripture. It isn't so much about speculating about the future Sorry, Left Behind series. As it is pastoral, it's about the the present moment. It's about setting that present moment in light of the invisible realities of the future and the invisible realities of the present. To draw back the curtain to say, this is who God is in this world. Trust in the promise of coming good, not based on, you know, Optimism, not based on wishful thinking, but based on the character of God. And so following Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, he knew that there was bound to be a lot of uncertainty that his disciples were going to face. And so he wants to prepare them for that moment. With that, I'd like to invite Jen to come forward. Uh, This section takes place while Jesus is in the temple over the course of two days. He's been asked all kinds of questions, and now he is leaving. And his leaving is both literal in that he is going somewhere else, but it is also fictive in the sense that he is saying the Spirit of God that was so long identified with this building, the temple, is going somewhere else. God is doing a new thing.
1: Uh, Let me pray for us. Lord, your teaching often troubled and confused your disciples. We confess, your teachings are often hard for us still. By the power of the Holy Spirit, bless us with ability to understand, humility to submit to, and faith to rest and live in the truth of your word. Our reading today is from Mark 13. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all are all about to be fulfilled. Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial... Do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that these will not take place in winter. Because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is. Do not believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so... When you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In
0: 2012, Jill and I took a trip to Barcelona. My imagination was captured by that city 20 years earlier when the Summer Olympics took place there, and I always wanted to experience the passion of Las Ramblas, uh, sculpture, and the paintings of Juan Miró. But more than anything, I wanted to see the architecture of Antoni Gaudi. As an artist, his vision was so unique. when I think about somebody who acts upon the world with holy intent, who poured every ounce of his creativity into what he did, I think about him. Nothing he designed was the same. They all bore his marks. He thought of his buildings as kind of like a living organism. This one here representing a gingerbread house, and then another one uh, had kind of scales on its back like a dragon. Um, but the crowning jewel of his achievement was to be the Cathedral uh, de la Sagrada Familia in the heart of Barcelona's city center. Uh, if you've ever seen it, it is absolutely amazing. I remember uh, when I was standing out there and I was talking to this woman next to me going on and on about it. She's like, yeah, I know I live here. Like I see it all the time. But yeah, the intricacy of the details, each uh, each facade of the building covered in a different type of sculpture carved into the sandstone. Um, the doors, you know, bore uniqueness. Colors on all of the the seven spires in the building. But on the inside. Uh, the interior pillars and buttresses, they, they took the shape of uh, resembling like bones and sinews, as if to say that the, the building itself was a living organism, uh, to say that, you know, even the stones themselves would participate in worship each day. I think about the building as kind of like a love letter to God in the language of the city. It is very Barcelona when you're in there. Now, Gaudi would not live to see this project completed, nor would six of the seven architects who took over after him. It began on March 19th of 1882, it is not scheduled to be completed until the year 2026. 140 years after the first stone was laid, it's a staggering work of beauty and genius. At every turn, something to marvel. Well, the temple in Jerusalem was, in its own right, a sight to behold. If not for quite the intricacy of it, for the uh, the the sheer volume and dominance of its presence, the the temple complex. Covered 35 acres in total. Some of the walls rose 15 stories in height. Uh, Some of the stones there weighed well over a million pounds. The size was unlike anything else in the ancient world. Gotta gotta give it a little uh, shake here. Uh, now, Israel's first temple was destroyed in the year uh, 587. It was something that absolutely crushed the soul of the people. 140 years later, Nehemiah led this project of rebuilding the temple, of repopulating the city. Herod the Great, you remember the one from the Christmas story, picked up the temple expansion project some 50 years prior to Jesus. And by the time that all of this stuff was happening, city planners were still working on bringing his vision to its completion long after his death. By every standard, the temple in Jerusalem was the artistic, the architectural jewel of Jewish culture. First century historian Josephus wrote this in describing what the temple looked like. The exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye for being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold. The sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as if from solar rays. I mean, how great is that? Because of its gold and its white gleaming marble, and standing on top of one of Jerusalem's prominent hills, passers by would say from a distance it resembled a city built on a cloud. What more suitable place could you have for the one who dwells most high God? So when these disciples from small town Galilee, are taken in by this symbol of power and prestige. You get the sense that if cameras had been invented, they would be, you know, snapping selfies in front of the facade. Look, teacher, they say, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. But for all that, Jesus is not impressed with any of it. He is not interested in snapping photos. Do you see all these great buildings? He fires back. Not one stone will be left on another, every one will be thrown down. And to get a sense of where this, you know, what this is all about, you have to see where it fits into the story. Uh, the Four disciples who are with him who posed the question, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they were the ones who were with Jesus from the very beginning. They were the ones that he called on the shoreside of Galilee. They crisscrossed with him all throughout the region, uh, listening to his teaching, seeing his healings, watching him drive out evil spirits, feed the masses, challenging the wealthy not to cling so tightly to their possessions, challenging the religious leaders not to cling so tightly to their certainties. They have come with him at last into the holy city and they've heard the crowds chant, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And so they have every reason to expect that Jesus has come to Jerusalem to bring about that longed for restoration of Israel, the establishment of God's kingdom on earth and what better background for the PR moment than in the temple, this place where God was said to dwell on earth. But then just as stunningly, they see Jesus barge into the temple and accuse the religious leaders of turning God's house into a den of thieves, of just going through the motions. They hear in that uh, echoes of Jeremiah's prophecy that God will destroy the temple, not because some Cosmic clock has ticked down to zero, but because the temple had become a place where people were going through the motions of religion while turning a blind eye to the poor, to the oppressed, to the orphan, to the widow. And so hearing that Jesus is announcing the end of the temple, the disciples go away with him to get a deeper take. Tell us, they ask, when is all this stuff going to go down? And that question is the entire is the setup for the entire rest of the chapter when will these things happen everything that jesus says in mark 13 is in response to that question about that temple when is this all gonna go down now tragically people have taken this these words of jesus out of context and have made them about the end of the world or about the end of the space-time universe. There are all kinds of books and novels and super cheesy rapture movies. I don't know if you, how many of you like, saw those like from the 1970s era, and they like, put the fear of God into you, about that sometime you were going to be sleeping and wake up and everybody was going to be gone and all that stuff. I'll say more about that next week. But what those miss is that Jesus here is clearly talking about something else. New Testament scholar Ben Weatherington put it like this, Jesus' words are primarily not about the end of the world, but about the end of a world. The world of first century Judaism as a temple-centered faith. And so everything that Jesus is saying about how his followers are going to live faithfully in a world that feels like it is going to be falling apart, where there is no temple to atone for their sin, where persecution, where war, where famine, where tragedy are the norm. And Jesus' vision of the future is not about the obliteration of the world, but about its renewal, about its radical healing, about the transformation of the world from one that is held captive by entropy and sin and death to one in which shalom and justice and flourishing are made to rule the day. And so he does this in two parts. How do you live in the present? What do you look for in the pain and the confusion of the near future? But then also in the second part, how do you live with expectancy and hope for the day when all things will be made right? That's what he's preparing his disciples for. Now, when Mark writes his gospel, uh, roughly 35 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, a lot of really gnarly stuff had happened or was going to happen in Israel. In the year AD 69, for instance, just as Emperor Vespasian was entering Rome to receive the the imperial crown, at the same time, his son Titus was marching toward Jerusalem to engage the city in a five-month siege that absolutely devastated Jerusalem. People starved. They fought each other in the streets for dirty scraps of food over small-scale political gains. In fact, historians note that in the first century that this was a scene in which more Jews killed each other than the surrounding Roman forces did. It was a civil war, and on top of that, there was an external war going on around it. It was a dark, dark time. And following the siege, thousands of, of uh, Roman crosses would be hung around the town bearing the marks of those who engaged in the rebellion. Pagan sacrifices were offered in the temple, and then the temple was burnt to the ground. And we're pretty sure that's what Mark is referring to with this whole strange abomination that causes desolation, let the reader understand. Cue in the middle of story. Remember that part? You're like, let the reader understand what? Like, what is that all about? Well, it is a nod to the book of Daniel, which speaks about this pagan Army invading Jerusalem, setting up sacrifice to pagan deities right in the middle of the temple. And in 8070, Roman forces broke through, absolutely laid waste to the temple. All of that gold plating that Josephus admired, all of the the gold from the money changers that was in the temple, it got so hot in the fire that it melted and began to seep into the cracks between the stones of the temple to the point that Titus had the entire building raised in order to recover it. To this day, if you go to Jerusalem, you will see rubble around the temple complex. It has never come back. And this has had reverberations into the present day. Uh, Modern Judaism bears very little resemblance to the Judaism of the first century because there is no temple. There is no place to offer sacrifices of atonement. And so it has had to entirely reinvent itself in the wake of the destruction of the temple. Uh, And so among the uh, the orthodox, you see that the temple is replaced by the synagogue, the priest is replaced by the rabbi, the sacrificial system replaced by renewed efforts on keeping the law and on doing justice, because you cannot follow the Torah without a temple. And so 2,000 years later, on the other side of the world, most of us are not ethnically Jewish by background. Or culture, so it's really hard for us to imagine what life without a temple would be like. But you gotta know that it was not like losing a cultural landmark, like when uh, Notre Dame burned down in Paris a few years ago. For first century uh, Judaism, this was a feeling of being without God, of being without hope, because the temple was the place where heaven and earth came together. Without the temple there could be no coming before God no way of standing in God's presence. Biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann put it like this. All that was visible and institutional, all that seemed theologically guaranteed by God's faithfulness, all that gave symbolic certitude and coherence, all that was linked to significance, identity and security was gone. All crumbled and burned in the fire, And I think the closest parallel, and even it fails to catch the depth of what was felt there, it was that sense of, of uh, devastation and, and vulnerability that we all felt on 9-11. Now, we remember that day. We remember where we were. We remember the destruction raining from the sky, the falling buildings, the streets filled with fire and smoke, people fleeing from the wreckage. That sense of complete bewilderment that the order of the world had had gone askew. And that feeling that you didn't know when it was going to end. And that's the kind of feeling that Jesus is evoking here. The world is going to be plunged into convulsions. His disciples will have to learn how to live in that space where the purposes of God and the pain of the world meet. And in one sense, this is all Mark's way of saying to the early Christians that there will be a time to stay and bear witness, but there will also be a time to leave. The world is about to change. There will be persecutions. There will be betrayals. There will be families set one against another. Things are going to get bad. And of course, we know with the hindsight of history that they did get bad. That over the next 40 years or so, Christians would find themselves increasingly at odds with the same religious establishment that crucified Jesus. And then Jews and Christians together would be expelled from the city in the year 135. And until the year 313, with the passage of the Edict of Milan, historians estimate that millions of Jesus followers, some say upwards of 10% of the known population of the Roman Empire, were put to death for their refusal to participate in Roman religious festivals, for their worshiping Jesus, for calling him Lord instead of Caesar, or because they refused to take up arms and fight. And so Jesus is saying, look, in the very near future, things are going to be dark. And the only language that you can use to describe something like this is borrowed from the prophetic language of Isaiah, of dark sun, quenched moon, falling stars. But the crazy thing is, instead of giving a timetable, Jesus just tells his disciples not to get sucked in by false prophets, by revolutionary messiahs, by slick presentations about how this is all going to go down. There's always going to be charlatans around, he says. Instead, he says, don't be alarmed. When you hear about wars, when you hear about earthquakes, when you hear about famines, these things will happen again and again in one place or another. And of course, this is a world with no internet, with no Twitter. Like, news did not travel fast. Sometimes if there was a war going on, you wouldn't hear about it for months, and even then you would hear contradictory reports of what went on. And he's saying, don't interpret these things as signs of God's judgment at the end of the world. The story isn't about a particular thing that's going to happen. The point is, this is going to keep happening. When you hear about Palestine or Ukraine, when you hear about violence or earthquakes in Pompeii, violence in Eritrea, don't be alarmed. This is life. This is the state of affairs in a world east of Eden. It is not yet the end. In fact, he says, it is only the beginning of the birth pangs. Once it starts, there's no going back. Welcome to church, everybody. (laughs) And so the question for us is, like, if this is not a gloomy timetable about the end of the world, then what on earth is Jesus getting at, and how do we drag it into the here and now? Well, I think, as always, the first thing we have to understand is what it meant for them before we understand what it means for us. And he is preparing his disciples for a different world. And you notice Jesus does not answer the question, like, you got to love Jesus for that. Like, the original question, when's this all going to happen? He does not say, oh, AD 70, General Titus is going to come in. You haven't met him yet. He's a new character will be introduced. Season three, just hang in there. His focus is on, rather, what kind of people are you going to be when this all does go down? Will you be people who stand firm in their allegiance to Jesus? Are you going to be taken in by false teaching, by revolutionary leaders? Who, Or instead, are you going to hold fast? Are you going to bear witness to hope? Are you going to practice nonviolence? Are you going to wait with expectancy? And that is the exact same question for all of us. We still live in a world where things are falling apart, where the center cannot hold. That's the world we live in. One that's full of violence and disease and enmity and and malnutrition and super hurricanes and smut and confusion, where black parents have to have the talk with their sons, where all kids have to go to school against the backdrop of and, and the anxiety of a potential lockdown where there is pollution, where there is war, and where there is the threat of war, and at the end of all of that, death. And because that is the world that we live in, we should expect trouble, suffering, and maybe even persecution. Now, in the West, by the grace of God, persecution is not something we know about. At, at worst, there may be, in a city like ours, kind of dismissiveness that you encounter when you know you, you, people let you, they find out that you are a follower of Jesus. The people you work with, your neighbors, maybe they'll think that you are naive or behind the times, on the wrong side of culture, or what have you. But at worst, what this means is that we have moved from a privileged position that came from the culture being broadly aligned with the Christian story. And that has taken a dip. Uh, I love how the writer Sky Jathani captures it in a little cartoon. He says, the loss of privilege does not equal persecution. If you look at the top line, that's where US Christians are. Maybe we've gone from privileged, but we're still preferred. <laughs> and perhaps maybe someday we'll move down from this, that scale of being preferred to being permitted. But at least here in the West, we are a long way to go from permitted to being persecuted. And I say that because it cheapens the plight of the millions around the world who do face overt discrimination and penalty for worshiping Jesus. This is a map of where it happens to be most severe. And the one thing I just want you to notice is that North America and Europe aren't even on the map. There's something about the kind of apocalyptic escapism that exists in corners of the North American world that sees the loss of privilege as a kind of bellwether of the end. And there's something about us that, like, because of the privileged status that we have, that we want to escape the pain of the world. I mean, I can see why the Left Behind books were so popular. It's essentially a theology of evacuation. It's like, get me out of here before I have to be a little bit uncomfortable so I can go to the place where it is better. In a world where we expect everything is always constantly supposed to be moving up and to the right, that is the very definition of privilege. When hardship comes, it is very easy to look for the eject button. But the hope of the gospel is not that Jesus is going to take us away from the pain. It's that he's going to return to remake the world from the ground up. And so our posture in the present, our posture in the future, isn't a kind of flee-first sort of escapism. It is one of engagement. And T. Wright puts it like this. Where human societies and institutions set themselves up against the gospel and its standards, producing arrogant and dehumanizing structures, deep injustices, and radical oppression, there may once more be a place for prophets to denounce and warn and for God's people to get out and run. But this is the thing. If we do not find ourselves in that position, we should be grateful. We should remember to pray for those even today who do. And I think so much of this boils down to is a misunderstanding of the nature of hope. And the nature of hope is to expect something good based on the character of God. And that's it. It's expectancy. It is not you know, a Pollyanna-ish look at the world. But the idea behind hope isn't that something bad isn't going to happen to us. It's that no matter what happens, God can and will bring a new creation out of it. Just like birth pangs. Have you ever been in a hospital room when a baby was born? Most of you mothers have. (laughs) I have twice. It's gnarly. I'm not squeamish at all. Uh, When we were getting ready for Graham, Jill and I, I, we went to some classes, we read some books about what to expect. And you know, you get all those instructions on how to breathe and be calm and all that and be zen. The thing is though, I saw these documentaries on Netflix that to this day, I cannot unsee. And our kids were born by a C-section, so I'm still a little bit bitter about the fact that I had to see those documentaries. Now, in the ancient world, like without hospitals, without technological means to ease the danger, the pain of labor, obviously birth was a different story. A good deal of intimate family life went on in a semi-public space. Everyone knew everyone else's business. People knew the pain of birth. It was not something that took place in, in an anesthetized and sterile environment. It was an agony that was in the living room, right? It was part of everyday life. It's so different for us. <laughs> the morning McKenzie was born, uh, Jill was having, uh, she was sitting on the couch having contractions, clearly in pain. And I was like, okay, well, it's, it's go time. Let me call some friends, have them come and get Graham. And she said, ah, uh, uh, well, I just started labor. I think I'm going to go to work for a couple hours first. Because she's a boss like that. But I was like, no, no, I don't think you should do that. Once this thing starts, there's no going back. It's a process you cannot really stop. Once the labor pain begins, there's only one way forward. You've got to move through it. But then on the other side of it, no amount of preparation can get you ready for that, holding that child that you have loved for months. So what is Jesus getting at with this image? Well, it's a common image in the Old Testament that used to describe the sharp and sudden pain that was going to come about humanity based on the day of the Lord. And apocalyptic images like this one, there's always another level of meaning. There's always a metaphorical twist. It's not just about the arrival of something bad. It is about the arrival of something very good. God is bringing new life into the world. It's something that the prophet Isaiah hints at. For a long time, this is God speaking, I have kept silent. I have been quiet and held myself back. But now, like a woman in childbirth, I cry out, gasp, and pant. I was struck a few weeks ago from the lines of the poem that Krista read on Mother's Day. This is my body broken for you. And all of us have been beneficiaries of that pain. And Jesus is saying that this world that is convulsed with pain, with agony, with, with strife, with wars, with earthquake, through these pains, a new world is being born. And so, this image of labor is not just about pointing to pain, it is also about pointing to life. And when Jesus speaks these words about pain, he is speaking, he's looking out over the edge of the horizon, over the of, of, of human pain, into this new world that is coming to bear. He says this on the eve of his suffering on the cross. And here in Mark's gospel, it's, it's on the verge of his own abandonment. And just as the temple, as God's presence in the world is going to be destroyed by the Romans, so too will the temple of his body be destroyed. But through the labor of the cross, a new world is being born. This is the mystery of the gospel. This is the hope that it points toward. I was struck by something this week, uh, as all these tributes started coming in to Tim Keller uh, from all kinds of places. He was, uh, if that name is not familiar to you, he's a highly influential pastor in New York who Managed to live an entire career without scandal, which seems like it should be unremarkable, but these days it feels like that's pretty remarkable. Then as all these tributes started coming in from all kinds of different places, I caught this clip from one video where he was asked the question, what would you say to the next generation who is anxious and fearful about the future? And he responded like this. Kathy, his wife, and I were just talking about this, and I think I'd want to say more than anything, if Jesus resurrected from the dead, if that's true, then everything is going to be okay. And it's one thing to say that when everything is going along swimmingly in life, when it's one hit after another. It is another thing altogether to say that when you know that you are dying from pancreatic cancer like he was. And those who knew him say that his witness to hope in the last few years of his life might have been the most impactful of his entire ministry. So this is not to say to those of you who are in this place of suffering, of pain, Just put a bright face on it and it'll all be okay. It is to say, though, that the pain and suffering of the present is not the last true thing about you. Jesus is saying, do not be alarmed. The agony of history is not beyond God's knowledge. It is not beyond God's power to transform it and to redeem it. Terrible things are but the beginning of the labor pains But you can live with the confidence that God is somehow going to bring something new out of it. Often it's in those times of suffering that God is doing the deepest work in us. I I have no idea where you are in this morning. Maybe you are in that spot. Uh, Or maybe you have been there before and you know that something good can come on the other side of it. Uh, In her book, The Critical Journey, Janet Hagberg talks about it being the wall. Uh, Others have talked about it being the dark night of the soul, this feeling of being unraveled, this feeling where you know that God is doing something, but you just want to get to the finish line. You just want it to stop. But the invitation of Jesus, particularly if you are in this season of labor, so to speak, is to hold on. Not till the end of the world, But the end of this season for God to do something new. And it's also an invitation to see the world for how it really is as as the pain before the beginning of a new life. That what looks like defeat, Jesus' death on the cross, is actually victory. And what looks like victory, Rome's destruction of the temple, is actually a signal of defeat. That what looks like weakness, Jesus and his teaching to engage with the world and not fight back is actually strength. And what looks like strength, participating in revolutionary violence, is actually weakness. That what looks like strife and failure is actually just the beginning of the birth pains. So the invitation for all of us is just to see the world for how it really is. That God's own suffering is the means through which a new world is born. And meanwhile, our job is to wait with expectancy, not as passive spectators, but as those who trust. The pain that you are in is just the beginning of something new. Let us pray. God, when we look out on the world, we ask that you would give us eyes to see what it is that you see, that in the midst of the pain, the heartache of the present, that we would see it as just the beginning of the birth pains, as the prelude to a new chapter that you are writing. So we ask you to give us the grace to hold fast, to trust in the presence of your spirit, to lean into the presence of community that we may know your presence among us. And even as we ask this, we do pray for those around the world whose pain is more acute. May they endure with hope. And so it is that as we come to the table, we acknowledge that you are present with us in and through the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen.